you for taking the time to listen to this sermon from Seekers Christian Fellowship. We believe that God's Word completes the believer, making them fully equipped men and women of God, ready for every good work. It is our prayer that through this message, you're challenged by the Word of God, built up in love for God and one another, conforming to the image of Jesus Christ. Thank you, brother. Thank you to the worship team, and um, it's good to see everyone uh, on this day, and um, uh, I'm so glad that we can gather to go deep into God's Word together here in the series in, in, in the book of John. Um, at around 11.30 p.m. on April 14th, 1912, a lookout on the RMS Titanic spotted the tip of an iceberg in the middle of the North Atlantic Ocean. Sadly, you all know the rest of that story, the sad story. Um, But I want to take a moment as we begin the message this, this morning to talk about icebergs. To talk about icebergs. The thing about an iceberg is... Because of the difference in density between ice and water, like ice is much more dense than water, because of that difference in density, as it turns out, when you look at an iceberg, what you see above the surface of the water is only a small portion. You've heard the expression, it's the tip of the iceberg, right? Right? Only a small portion can be seen while while much of that mass of ice, most of it, 90% in fact, 90% lies beneath the surface of the water. Now, why am I I starting with icebergs this morning? Um, I think sometimes we as Christians can view our salvation as though it is just the tip. Just that small portion. It's, it's simple. It's basic. If you think about it, the gospel is actually quite simple. It's quite str- I've been reciting it to my son in a poem. It's four lines. Four lines. God created me. I sinned. Jesus died and rose that I might live. That's it. For, I mean, it's, it's, it's Sunday school, right? It's, it's, you've known this for a long time. It doesn't seem like very much, does it? It doesn't seem like very much. But there are moments in life and moments in the Scripture when it feels like the curtain is being pulled back. And all of a sudden, you realize that what seemed like not very much, it seemed like just the tip of, a, of an iceberg, it actually, you were only seeing a fraction of what was really there. You were only seeing a, a, a small portion of what was really there. There are these moments when your eyes are opened and you realize you see the depths that lie beneath the surface of the water, beneath the surface of your salvation. Well, after speaking to his disciples for the last several chapters, 13, 14, 15, 16, we've come to John chapter 17. 
And in this chapter, Jesus stops speaking to his disciples. He stops speaking to them. He lifts his eyes to heaven. This is verse 1. He lifts his eyes to heaven and he begins to speak to who? His Father. He begins to pray, right? He begins to pray. And what follows in chapter 17 is what I like to call the Lord's Prayer. Okay? And I know what you're thinking. It's not that Lord's Prayer. Right? What are you thinking about? Our Father who art in heaven. Right? That's Matthew chapter 6. That's how Jesus taught us to pray. Right? Why do I say that? What does it say? Forgive us our sins as we... Jesus couldn't pray that prayer. He had no sin. That, that, so, so that's how he taught us to pray. But John chapter 17 is, is, is truly the Lord's prayer. It is what our Lord Jesus Christ prayed. And as Pastor Dale covered last Sunday, as he, as he began to unpack this chapter, verses 1 to 5, we realize that we are very privileged because we get to hear, we get to listen in on a conversation between Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and His Father. That's what we're doing here, okay? Like the, like the fly on the wall that Keith referred to earlier, we are able to listen in on Jesus the Son speaking to His Father. And what do you realize? What are you realizing as you're listening into this, that the plain old gospel, that four-line thing that I just shared with you, right? The, 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 the basic Christianity 101, yeah, I'm a Christian, yeah, I, I, I believe the Bible, yeah, I, I follow the gospel, yes. The thing we all take for granted was just the tip of the iceberg. It was just the tip of the iceberg, that beneath the surface of the water, beneath the surface of your salvation lies an unfathomable, deep foundation, a contract, okay? Underlying your salvation is an agreement, a contract, if you will, or what theologians call a covenant, okay? A covenant between God the Father and His Son, Jesus. Okay? So, so I don't want us to settle for just the, the basic one-on-one Christianity. We are going deeper this morning to see that underneath the gospel, underneath the salvation that you and, 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 and even as children you have believed, underneath that surface was an eternal covenant between God the Father and His Son, Jesus, Concerning you and I. Concerning us, the church. It's remarkable. It's remarkable. If you've ever signed a contract, okay, today, maybe you did it for work. Have you ever had to sign a contract for work, right? Or, or maybe at the bank you went and you signed a contract or mortgage or, or maybe you have to get something fixed in your house, right? Things are breaking down. You got to call a contractor. They come and what do you do? You have a written agreement, right? What is it about a contract? Uh, the thing about a contract is a contract has stipulations, right? The contract has conditions that have to be met. So each party is promising to uphold their end of the deal. So, so, so I say, okay, I need this fixed, and you say, okay, then you pay me this, and so there's, there's an agreement, right? There's, there's a promise with stipulations. Well, just like that, just like that, God the Father, His covenant with Jesus Christ is also a promise with 
stipulations. Okay? A promise with stipulations. Here it is. Are you ready? This is between God the Father and God the Son. Here's what, here's what happened. God said, God the Father, that if Jesus Christ, His Son, okay, if Jesus would leave the glory of heaven, right, humble Himself and come down to earth, right, condescend graciously to earth, and if he would accomplish the work that God gave him to do, that's verse 4 of what we covered last week. If he would accomplish the work that God gave him to do, including die for our sins, if Jesus does that, then God the Father would give Jesus a people. A people. Guess who? You and I, the church. That's verse 2 from last, last Sunday's message. Verse 2. He would give them, a, give Jesus a people to glorify Jesus. That's verse 5. To glorify Christ. So, so are you following so far? So there's an agreement underneath your go- the gospel that you believe is, is an eternal agreement between God the Father and God the Son concerning you and I. So there are three parties, if you will, okay? Three um, participants in this covenant And in our text this morning, verses 6 to 10, we are going to look at each of these three uh, persons, if you will, um, in turn, okay? We're going to look at the Father and His plan. We're going to look at you and I, the church, and our faith before we come to the Son, Jesus Christ, and His intercession, okay? Everyone with me so far? Yeah? I'm getting some, some, some odd looks, I hope. I hope we're all together on this, right? Do we want to go back to the tip? We don't want to stay at the tip of the iceberg, right? We want to go deeper. We want to see the depths. And so would you come with me? Because my my, my prayer is that after we go there and we see this, it will lead us, each one of us, to praise and glorify God for saving us. For saving us. The gospel that you and I take for granted, that we would come to a new appreciation of that gospel today. That's my prayer, okay? So let's start. If you can turn in your Bibles, please. Uh, there's Bibles in the chairs in front of you. You're going to need it to follow along. Uh, John chapter 17, you heard it read. John 17, and we are starting in verse 6, okay? Do you have it? John 17, verse 6. Remember, Jesus is speaking to his father, right? That's the conversation. Jesus speaking to his father, and here's what he says. Look at verse 6 with me. Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. Church, the first thing I want you to see underlying your salvation is this, the Father's plan. Okay, can anyone say that with me? The Father's plan. The Father's plan. Did you notice in verse 6, look at verse 6 again. Just in that verse alone, do you know that Jesus refers to his Father five times in that one verse? Look at this. I have manifested your name to the people you gave me out of the world. Yours they were. You gave them to me. And they have kept your word. What am I trying to say? Listen, believers, God the Father planned to save you. It was his plan. What do I mean? This wasn't random. 
God wasn't working ad lib. He, he wasn't making up the plan as he went along, right? Like, you know how uh, sometimes musicians, we play it by ear? Have you heard that? No offense to the musicians out there. Not referring to our worship team, right? You guys practice hard, and, right? But, but playing it by, that's not God. God. God wasn't doing that. He wasn't surprised by your response. Do you know that? When you responded to the gospel, he wasn't surprised by, the, by your lack of response. He wasn't caught off guard by the actions of other people. He didn't even have a plan B. He didn't have a plan B in case there was traffic or there was, you know, he had to course correct. There was only one plan, the Father planned to save you. He planned it. He planned it. Look at, G, look at what Jesus says, verse 6 again. How did the plan unfold? Look at, the, look, at, look at verse 6. Jesus says, I have manifested your name. You know what the word manifest means? It means to reveal something. Okay? Okay? So he says, I have manifested or I have revealed your name. Meaning what? Your, God's name is not just his name. It's also his, his, his nature. His will, his words, his works. Jesus is looking back on his life, right? He's about to die on the cross, right? He's hours away from his death. He's looking back on his life and he's saying, God the Father, I have manifested you. I have revealed you, right? That's what he's saying. He's looking back on his life. And did you notice to whom he has revealed the Father? Look at verse 6. To whom does Jesus say, he has revealed God the Father to the people. Do you see that? To the people whom you gave me out of the world. Now, friends, this is as specific as Jesus can get. Okay? What am I saying? God didn't come up with this plan and then say, let me throw it out there and see where it sticks. That's not what happened. Okay, this wasn't a general plan of salvation. This wasn't a vague plan of salvation. This wasn't to an ill-defined people. It was a very specific plan to a specific group who have always belonged to God. Who have always belonged to God. I don't know if you caught the significance of those three words because no one said amen there. So, so let's go back there. It says in verse 6, do you notice it says, Yours they were. Did you catch those three words? What is he saying? Yours they were. Jesus is speaking to his father, right? There's an agreement between the two of them. And he's saying, he's telling us that all true believers, if you're a true believer today, you have always belonged to God. Amen. Just take that in for a moment. That, church, that's one of the most comforting things I can tell you this, this morning. If, if you ever feel like you don't belong, maybe in your home, right? Or maybe at school, or maybe um, at your workplace, or God forbid, but let's be honest, perhaps even here at church. If you ever feel while well, you're sitting there in the fellowship hall and you're all by yourself and you're wondering, do I really belong? Let me tell you something. If you're a believer, you have always belonged to God. And if this is God's house, guess what? You belong here too. You belong. You belong. And maybe you're wondering to yourself, well, 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 when did this happen? I don't remember getting anything in the mail. When did God choose for me to belong? Let me tell you something. It wasn't yesterday. It wasn't Saturday, July 22nd. 
It wasn't that one time when you served God really, really, really well, and he thought, man, I got to have him on my team. That's not what happened. It wasn't when you were baptized. Sorry uh, uh, to uh, Beverly. I know we celebrated her baptism a couple weeks ago, but it didn't happen then. God didn't choose Beverly when she got baptized. God didn't choose you when you repented and first believed in him and, and prayed a prayer of confession. That's not when. When did it happen? Ephesians 1 verse 4. He chose us in Christ. Look at this. When? Before the foundation of the world. Could that really be, church? Is that really true? As, as, as Revelation 17, 8 suggests, is it true that your name, your name, Keith Adams, um, Albert Walker, Bruno DeConning, is it true that your name was written in the book of life when? Before the foundation of the world? Is Paul telling us the truth in Titus chapter 1 verse 2 that God who never lies made this promise to save you when? Before the ages began? Yes. It's true. Beloved, this is true. What what am I trying? This is what I mean by seeing beyond the tip of the iceberg. What am I saying? Your testimony did not begin on the day that you prayed to receive Christ. Some of you, you think that's when it all began, right? And you tell your story like it began there. No, no, no. What am I saying? That was just the tip of the iceberg. Because before the universe even came to be, you belong. You belong to God. I still remember the first time in my, in my 20s, I think I was in my early 20s, I, I, I first understood or, or realized this astounding truth, the sovereignty of God in my salvation. That's the first time I really, it really hit me, right? And, and, and I don't know if you've had that moment in your faith yet. Have you had that moment when you first realized that you have belonged to God even before you were born? Have you, have you thought about that for a moment? Do, 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 you know, do you know what that means? That means that before you could do anything in this life, good or bad, God chose you to belong to Him. Before you could do anything, friends, anything, dear church, Nothing, none of those things could save you. Look at this, 2 Timothy 1 verse 9, Paul says, God saved us, look at this, not because of our works. It's nothing, it's nothing you have done. Why did he save you? Look at this, it's so important. Because of his own purpose. His own purpose and grace. And when did it, when, when did it come? Which he gave us, when? Again, before the ages began. Are you seeing a pattern? Are you seeing the repetition of this truth throughout Scripture? That you have always belonged to God. You know, if there's anything I wish I could pass on to the next generation, like, like you know, our kids and our Sunday school, our, our youth, our young adults, even my own generation, if there's anything I could wish they, they would get is this, God doesn't owe us anything. 
I think sometimes we come, and especially my generation, we come with this attitude, okay, I deserve this. I deserve this. These are my rights. I deserve this. No, no, no. You and I, sinners before a holy God, there is an infinite distance between sinful humanity and the holy God. You could have never earned relationship with him. Never, never. There's no way. There's no way. God doesn't owe us anything. If you are saved this morning, I want to tell you something. It is because before the world even began, it pleased God to choose to draw near to you. That's why. That's why. To choose to save you. You, yes, you. And when you get that truth, okay, when you really understand what I'm saying here, what the word is saying here, it will cause you to tremble. It will really cause, you know why I'm saying that? Because all of a sudden, you look around the room and you realize what? I am no more deserving to be saved than anyone else in this room. Than anyone else in the world. And all you can humbly say is, why me? Why me, Lord? When the only thing separating me from the hell I deserve is your gracious plan. His plan. Don't you give thanks to God, church? Don't you give thanks to God for the Father's plan? That's the first uh, part of our text this morning, okay? So we're looking at this agreement. We're looking at this covenant, this contract between God and His Son. And we said, God the Father, we talked about His plan. And that brings us to the second part of the iceberg, if you will. How do I know, how do you know if you are part of this plan? <laughs> right? Natural question, right? That should come into your heart. Okay, well, that's a great plan. That sounds awesome. How do I know that I'm, that's a, that applies to me? This, this amazing covenant, this agreement, how do I know that I'm even part of this? How do I know that I belong to God? And the answer is your faith. By our faith, okay? It's by our faith that we know we belong to God. I have to share this with you. Um, one Sunday... I think a few months back, after I preached uh, from, from here, a brother whom I deeply appreciate, he came up to me after service and he said he wanted to talk to me. So we sat down and uh, he was very concerned. He had a concern. He, he was worried, actually. And when I, when I probed him further, he felt like when I was, I was presenting the gospel to people, I was inviting them to repent and to believe in Jesus, right? To be saved. And he felt that I was coming across or I was suggesting that, that faith is not enough to be saved. Okay? That faith is, like, 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 that, 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 that you need to somehow clean up your life before you can come to God. Like you can't come to God the way you are. You have, to, you have to clean things up. You need to somehow become a better person in order for you to be saved. And, and, and because he, he thought that's what I meant by repentance. But, but this convicted me so deeply because I, I, I need to tell you something from here. God, forgive me. 
If I ever stand up here and suggest to you that you need to do anything more than believe in Jesus to be saved. Because it's true. As we sang earlier today, with, with simple faith, what did it say? Only trust him. Only, that, that's it. Only turn to Jesus with simple faith and he will save you. He will save you. And so I must say that at the, at the beginning, there is no other requirement, there is no other barrier between you and God this morning except that you believe. If you believe, you can be saved. You can be saved. But, <laughs> um, as I said earlier, there is the tip of the iceberg, right? That's the faith. Um, but there are depths to a faith that you need to understand. Yeah, you just need to believe to be saved. That is true. But what does true faith look like? That's beneath the surface, right? That, that's under the water now. And Jesus, in the next three verses, verses 6 to 8, he takes us beneath the surface to show us what, true, what the true faith of a disciple looks like, okay? And I want to quickly show you this. Three things, okay? Um, look at verse 6 again. Verse 6. The first thing, about true faith is this. True faith keeps God's, what do you think? His word. You see at the end, and they have kept your word. Jesus speaking to his father about his disciples. They have kept your word. So, so, so the first thing you should know is true faith keeps God's word. If there's anything I've learned, especially and, and even as an elder, it's this. It's easy to find people who say they believe in God. It's easy to find people, find members who, who can say the right things, but do we obey? Do we keep God's word? That's the first thing, okay, about true faith. It keeps God. The second thing he says in verse 7, look at verse 7 now. The second thing about true faith is this. True faith believes everything Jesus has said and done everything. Look at verse 7. He says, Jesus says, now they, speaking of his disciples, he says, now they know that everything you have done or you have given me is from you. Everything. What does that mean? True faith is not a pick and choose kind of thing. True Christians do not pick and choose what they like from Christianity. This isn't the buffet at the Mandarin, right? No one's been to the buffet at the Mandarin. You all have, and you're not, no one's admitting it. It's okay. We've all been there, right? True faith is not like that. It's not a pick and choose thing where you can pick and choose what fits with your worldview or pick and choose what helps you to fit into the culture. No, no, no. This is a take it or leave it. This is an all or nothing faith. That's true faith. Believes everything Jesus has said. And the third thing in verse 8 that Jesus teaches us is that true faith is as certain, as certain as knowledge. Okay? It's as certain as knowledge. Look at this. He says, I've given them the words that you gave me. They have received them and they have come to what? No. No. Knowledge. They've come to know in truth that I came from you and, and have believed that, I, that you sent me. Knowledge. This is what... The, this is the depth of a true faith. You understand the difference, right? If I say to you, I believe 
Jesus is Lord versus if I say to you, I know Jesus is Lord. There's a difference. Do you, do you, do you, do you, can you palpate that, this, that? There's a difference there, right? Between, what's the difference? The difference in assurance, right? The difference in conviction. The difference in confidence. The difference in certainty. That's the true faith. I know. True faith then keeps God's word, believes everything he says, and is as certain as knowledge. Okay? So that is the kind of faith that Jesus is, is talking about here. The kind of faith that proves you belong to God. If you're wondering, do I belong to God? The question I would ask in follow-up was, is do you have this kind of faith? Do you have this kind of faith? So we've looked at the Father, okay? The Father and His plan. We've looked at the church, the true church, you and I, and our faith. And that brings us to the last part. The last part of the agreement, right? The last part of this contract, if you will, is Christ, Jesus Christ the Son, and His intercession. You know, the word intercession is not a word we use every day. I don't think I've ever heard any of you say the word intercession in a normal conversation. Anyone? Maybe? Maybe. I don't know. We don't say it a lot, right? What does that word mean? What does it mean? Intercession means to intervene on behalf of another. Okay? That's what it means. It means to intervene on behalf of another. And so, with that in mind, you already know from this passage how Jesus has done that. Right? He's come to earth. He was sent by the Father. He's manifested God to to us. Right? He's revealed God to us. He's lived the, the sinless life, the miraculous works, the teaching, all so that his disciples would come to believe. No, no, no. To know that Jesus is the Son of God. Right? He's done all of that. So he has interceded in a way. And in just a few short hours, he is going to pay the ultimate price on our behalf, right? Intervening on our behalf. What do I mean? He's going to die on the cross, right? On our behalf. Right? He, he, he was sinless. He didn't have to die. He was dying on our behalf. So that is his intercession. Um, but there's a deeper significance to this prayer that Jesus is praying. And I don't want you to miss it, okay? If you look at your Bible for a second, look at the top of chapter 17 you'll notice the scholars have added a subtitle. Do you see it there? A subtitle. What does it say? The High Priestly Prayer. Do you see it there? Most of your Bibles will have that, right? The High Priestly Prayer. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, as it turns out, um, in the Old Testament, the high priest was the one who interceded for the people. Okay? In the Old Testament, for the people of Israel, it was the high priest. He was the guy. He was the one who would go and pray for the people. He was the one who would go and be an advocate for the people before God. Right? He was the one who would offer sacrifices for their sins and, and even for his own sin. This is what the high priest did in the Old Testament. So the question you have to ask is, well, what's the problem? What was the problem with that, with that intercession? Well, because the high priests were human, just like you and me, they were sinners, right? And, and the wages of sin is death. 
So what that means is, after a few years, what would happen? The high priest would die. And when he died, all of a sudden, the intercession was in a tentative limbo until they got another guy to come in and be the next high priest. Do, do you see what I'm having? See, so, 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 the, so the people are depending on an intercession that is continually changing, right? It's, it's this tentative, fragile arrangement because at any moment, the high priest could die of old age or something else. So, 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 so it's, it's an inferior intercession, uh, repetitive uh, people one after the other until finally in the New Testament, the true high priest came. Who? Jesus. Until Jesus came. Look at this. Hebrews says it beautifully. I, I, I hope you're, you're getting the depth of this. Look at this. He explains it beautifully. He says, the writer of Hebrews, the former priests were many in number. Why? Because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. We just talked about that, right? They, they were, they're sinners. They die. So then someone else has to come in their place. And then verse 24 says, but he, speaking of Jesus, he holds his priesthood. Say this with me. Permanently. Permanently. Why? Because he continues forever. Indeed, church, in just a few short days, what was Jesus going to do? He was going to rise from the dead, never to die again. Right? Never to die again. And so verse 5 says, consequently, okay, in light of all of this, verse 25, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Jesus. Why? Since he always lives Say this with me. He always, one more time, he always lives. He's living now. He lives to make intercession for them. That's what Jesus is doing now, church. He's living to make intercession. This is why when we come back to verse 9, it says that Jesus is praying for us. Can you just think about that for a moment? Jesus is praying for you. How much we want, oh, I wish so-and-so would pray for me. I wish you would pray for me. Can you add this to the prayer request? Can you do I'm not saying that's bad. But if you're a believer, Jesus is praying for you. That's what it says here. As our high priest. And in case you didn't get it, look how specific he gets. This is a very difficult part of the text. He says, I am not praying for the world. Should we close up here? Leave it for Pastor Deo or Pastor Ronald next week. <laughs> I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you, get, you have given me. So what does this mean? This is very important, okay? I don't want you to leave with the wrong understanding. Theologians call this the doctrine of Definite atonement. Okay? Definite atonement. You know what that means? It means that Jesus died only for those who would believe. Okay? Jesus did not die for those who would never believe in him. You're following me so far, right? That's called universalism. 
Have you heard of the doctrine of universalism? I think we might even have a universal... Anyways, let's leave that alone. Right? Universalism means that what? What does it mean? It means that um, if Jesus died for the sins of the whole world, that means everyone is saved. Regardless of what you believe, you are saved. That's not what we believe, church. What do we believe? That Jesus died for the sins of the world, which means anyone in the world, Jew or Gentile, can be saved by faith. But that doesn't mean that if you don't believe in Jesus, you're saved. It doesn't mean that, right? As if Jesus dies in vain for people who would never be saved. That's not happening, right? You get that. Jesus is not dying in vain for someone who would never be saved. And so he says, I am praying for you. I'm praying for you. Though God extends his common grace to all people, all people, he causes the sun to rise on the good and the evil, the, the just and the unjust. Though he does that, his intercession, his intercession as the true high priest is for us. It's for us. He closes the text in verse 10. This is, this is remarkable. Okay, last verse. He closes it this way. He says, Jesus says, All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now, now if, you, if you read that quickly, you may not get it. But Martin Luther, um, I don't think he read things very quickly. He took his time, right? Martin Luther, one of the great reformers. Um, he, he, he explains it this way. Everyone can say the first part of what, what, what verse 10 says. He said, first, all that I have is God's. That's true for all of you, right? All of you guys can say that. Everything you have is God's. That's true. For any creature on earth can say that all that we have is God's. But this is much greater. What Jesus is saying here, he turns it around and says that all that is yours, all that is God's is mine. No, no, no. This no creature is able to say before God. No creature can say that. You, you get that, right? All that I have is God's. Sure, we all say that. But all that God has is mine. None of us can say that, church. Except Jesus. Why? Because he is God. Because he is God. Because he is God. So I want to conclude by addressing each of you. Okay? As you know, in every message, there are only two groups in the audience, right? There's only two groups. If you are a believer this morning, okay, if you already have true faith, what I've shown you today is that Christ, in his prayer, he's taking us beneath the tip of the iceberg, right? Sure, you, you believe the gospel. Yes, you're a Christian and all that is good. But now we're going to the depths, this foundation, that at the bottom of that of that iceberg is a contract, an agreement, a covenant between God the Father and His Son Jesus. A, a, a covenant that says that you have always belonged to the Father. You've always belonged to Him. Before the world even began, you belonged to God the Father, and then He promised you to His Son Jesus. He promised you in an eternal covenant to Jesus His Son, who is now your high priest interceding for you, praying for you. And if that's you, okay, if you're a believer, I want to tell you something. 
I want, to, I want you to look at the end of verse 10 for a moment. Look at the end of verse 10 again, please. Okay. Um, Jesus tells us what his true disciples do in their life. What do they do? He says, I am what? Glorified in them. Now, the word glory is one that we use a lot in church, right? We say, oh, I wish, I, I want my life to glorify God right? We brush over that word tons because we say it all the time. Yeah, I, I, I want to glorify him with this. I want to, in our prayer request, yeah, help me to glorify God. I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm saying sometimes we brush over that word and we don't understand the, the, the significance of it. But in light of what you have learned today, in light of what you have learned between the, the covenant between God the Father and God the Son, do you realize that you and I are the gift we are the gift, the reward that's going to Jesus. For all that he has done, right? Fulfilling the stipulations, honoring the contract from start to finish. He did it all. What is the, what is the response? We become his. We are the gift, church. We are his reward. And so if you're wondering to yourself, well, well how am I supposed to reward him? How, how, how do I reward Christ for all that he has done? You do it by bringing glory to him with your life. That's how you do it. That's how you do it. What I'm saying is glorifying God is not just a nice thing to say. It is actually what he is rightfully due. He earned this by his life and death and resurrection. This is your rightful, what you owe to Christ is a life that glorifies him whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, that you glorify Him. And so my encouragement to you is see the way you glorify God this way. See it this way. It's not a nice afterthought. It is literally what we owe to Jesus Christ for what He has done for us. For what He has done for us. That's to the believers. And finally, to those of you who do not yet believe, maybe you're here, maybe you're watching online, I want to give you this encouragement because I feel like when you, when you heard me speak about Jesus this morning, you may have thought you were excluded, right? Because I said in verse 9, Jesus says, I am praying for my disciples and not for the world. So if you're an unbeliever or you're not, you're not yet a believer today, you may have felt completely excluded from what we're talking about today. But I don't want you to feel that way. Because if you go just a few verses later, same prayer, same prayer, John 17, verse 20 I want you to see what Jesus says. These precious words. He says, I do not ask for these only. Speaking of who? His disciples, right? The 11, the 11 around the table, right? What, is he, what does he say? But also for those who will believe in me through their word. Those who will. What's that tense? That's a future tense. Those who will believe. Friends, Jesus prayed not just for his disciples of that day, but also for every single one of you here. Whether you know it or not yet, <laughs> whether you know it or not yet, he prayed for those who would believe. That they would know that they belong to God, that your name is already written in the book of life. And so the question I want to leave with you is, will this be the day you believe. Well, you already belong. You've belonged since before the world began. Your name is already written in that book. 
but will this be the day you believe? Worship team, if you can come. And church, if you can stand. And let us um, pray and close off this, this word. And give him glory. Give him glory for his salvation. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much. Oh, Lord, um, this was your word, and these are your people. And, Father, I have, I have nothing to do here. This is all you. You are the one who saves. You are the one who planned. You are the one who, who promised us to Christ. You are the one who sent your son to earth, who then went and lived the life we could never live, died the death we should have died, and rose again so that he could always live to intercede for us, to pray for us that we could glorify you. Lord, you have done everything. We have added nothing to our salvation except the sin that, that makes us need a savior. That's all we've added to the equation. You have done it all. And so I pray, Lord, this morning, I know that you still have people in this city who don't know you who belong to you. They are your people from before the ages began. You have already written their name down in the book of life, but they yet, they do not yet believe. And so, Lord, would this be the day? Might this be the day that they would come to their senses, that their hearts would turn to Jesus, to trust him, only trust him, knowing that he will save us. Thank you for this morning. Convict every heart, and may we glorify you now, glorify you as your rightful due. In Jesus' name we pray.